George mm-hmm. Floyd is significant because after his death, a whole nation stood up. We can say that of a number of other people, but what happened last summer was well out of bounds of what we had seen in the past. And I think there's a question of what's going to happen this summer. listening, Juneteenth is short for June 19th, which is when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865, two and a half years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was to take control of the state and kind of ensure that all enslaved people be freed. It kind of honors the end to slavery in the United States and is considered the longest running African-American holiday. Actually, right here in our town, lots of organizations will be putting on a Juneteenth celebration. So that's pretty cool that our community kind of celebrates it as well. Yeah, and kind of surprising, I suppose, in that there isn't a huge population of Black folks in Eau Claire, but I think it is a good event to get out to. But it is a worthy holiday to meditate on. I think it makes us think not only, of course, about African-American history, but it also makes us think about like, well, what do we mean by a law? What do we mean by abolition? And how that truly needed to be done at the point of a gun? As There's really no way of getting around that. And the reason why it took 100 years between Juneteenth and Selma is because Reconstruction was abandoned, because it wouldn't have happened except at the point of a gun. It's then, I suppose, worth meditating on further of how King decides that it's going to be done differently 100 years later. And I think that the fact that so many of these stories are taking place during the 1840s is an indication of the historical moment in terms of abolitionism as a movement sort of catalyzing right around then. And obviously, slavery had been in America since 1619, as we know. Or if, if you want to get super technical, you know, racialized chattel slavery had been around in North America since 1619. But it's really in the 1840s that you finally have a sort of critical mass of people in this hardline abolition movement saying this system not only is evil, but must be destroyed right now, even through illegal action, even through violence, even through anything. That's why these stories come to prominence. And we see it happening in all these different ways, you know, whether you're talking about outright I don't want to use the word theft, and yet they use the term theft because legally speaking, you know, what Harriet is doing is referred to as stealing slaves, right? Whether whether you're talking about escape, whether you're talking about 
armed insurrection as you are uh, on the Amistad, uh, whether you're talking about literary actions drawing a- attention to the conditions of slavery, uh, like Solomon Northrop, or whether you're talking about legal maneuvers, as we have you know, John Quincy Adams engaging with in, in Amistad. All of these various fronts of that fight are part of this catalyzed abolitionist movement that produces this huge quantity of literature and all these stories and all this mythology that then becomes the way that we understand what slavery was. So I, I did think it was really interesting that so many of these are 1840s period pieces and that throughout the people who are in these situations very frequently are fully aware that this is ultimately going to go to civil war. It's just a question of when and how. So it is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre, which happened Memorial Day weekend, 1921. It happened because Dick Rowland, a black shoe shiner, he was accused of assaulting Sarah Page, a white 17-year-old. And while he was in custody, there were people gathered outside the jail and white people wanted to lynch him. And the sheriff sent the black people home that were there to protect him, saying they had it handled. In the end of while he was imprisoned, 12 people were shot, which led to the Black Wall Street Massacre, the Tulsa Race Riot, which happened Memorial Day weekend, and it demolished the Black Wall Street um, in Greenwood District, Oklahoma, because it was so prosperous. It was the most prosperous Black economy in America. In the end, There were 36 total dead and displaced people in 1921, and later it was estimated 200 Black people and 50 white people dead. The area of Tulsa that you said uh, was called Greenwood, they called it Black Wall Street, I suppose, for a reason. As you know, it was the most prosperous African-American community at that time. And the Tulsa massacre was part of a number of such events in their day called race riots. Increasingly, people are preferring to use the term massacre that happened in that largely in the summer of 1919, but then again into 1920 and 1921. This is the period sometimes referred to as Red Summer. Madeline, Anna, did you know much about the Tulsa massacre or is this something that you're just learning about recently? It's it's sort of an event that's come to greater prominence over the past couple of years. I think that we briefly touched on it in my AP US history class, but we didn't go in depth into it. And then when I took college classes, we started talking about it more. So not really until college. Yeah, I think it was by far the most extreme of the, uh, honestly, you know, the closest word used for these events is probably something like pogrom, probably the worst of those of this era and ultimately, you know, than ever in the history of the United States. And obviously there's been a lot of pretty bad examples of racist violence in the United States. Yes, this is that period that's sometimes referred to as the nadir of American race relations. Anna, had you heard of the Tulsa massacre? My experience is similar to Madeline's. You know, I took, like most other people, you know, U.S. history in, I think it was, if I remember right, it was my sophomore year in high school. You know, like Madeline said, if we talked about it, it was very minor in comparison to the other big events within U.S. history. I really started learning about it freshman year of college 
maybe something fleeting in high school, but I took an African-American history course and we spent a whole day on the Tulsa massacre. And there's actually an online interactive map where it shows where they were found dead and it gave little info about them, their race, and you can do like different overlays and stuff. And we had to list by hand everybody that was black or white in the different columns. These events, these these massacres, these race riots, like I said, they occurred all around the United States, generally in the summer months of especially 1919 through 1921. And it's worth noting that a lot of this is really tied up with the history of the First World War, believe it or not. We've talked a little bit in the past about how whenever you have a major full mobilization war, there is some degree of liberalization of the sort of social order. There is often simultaneously, though, a more extreme restriction on the political order. Like those things kind of happen together in a weird way in a way that can be really dangerous for minority groups and, you know, for women. And we've talked about a few examples of that at times. These events are kind of a good example of that. It's no accident that you have these, again, whether you want to call them massacres or whether you want to call them pogroms, that occur after the First World War and analogously after the Civil War. There's uh, sort of similar types of events that happen in the southern states targeting Black former soldiers after the Civil War. And what you have in the so-called race riots, and part of the reason why the U.S. media, or if we want to be more precise, the white U.S. media of the era is able to describe them as race riots in a way that tries to more or less engage in a sort of both sidesism, is that this really is the first time in, or maybe not the first time in history, but but certainly the first time during this period of the nadir of the race relations. That is to say, with excluding slave rebellions, excluding, say, Harriet Tubman's action, liberating slaves, this was the first time during the nadir of race relations when you have examples of trained and armed Black men ready to fight to defend their neighborhoods and organizing to do so in mass. We see that in the Chicago massacre, which was in 1919, one of the sort of major ones of the so-called Red Summer. We see that also in Tulsa, right? And that's not to say that these are two-sided things. That's you know part of the problem, of course, of being a minority group, especially when the majority, of course, is using the police force explicitly to attack your group, is that you know, it never really can be a fair fight. But part of the reason why white America was so incredibly paranoid about black men was this. This image of the Black American soldier coming home from war, proud, strong, brave, ready to defend his rights, demanding more rights. Eventually this summer we'll get to read the Claude McKay poem, If We Must Die, which is from this same period. And this same period is the period that is the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance. So you have these distinctly Black neighborhoods, some of which were actually 
quite prosperous, or at least had prosperous bourgeois classes within them in the United States, in, in Black America. And there was no small amount of resentment of that from white America. And these attacks, these massacres, of course, could be sparked by the lightest little thing. In a world where, you know, white people had been telling each other and themselves to be absolutely terrified of the violence, the sexuality, the supposed predatory nature of Black men, you know, to the point that just any stray comment, any false move could set people off to, you know, utter madness. When we talk about the violence in Tulsa in this event, it's it's worth reminding ourselves that this is not just mob violence. We like to think of it that way, but you know, once mobs reach a certain point, it goes beyond that to something that's like truly military. And one of the things that surprised me most about the Tulsa massacre, as I heard more about it, and I only learned about it in the past couple of years, honestly. I mean, I've studied American history for most of my life. And granted, this is not my area of specialization, but I should have heard about it sooner than a couple of years ago, you know? One thing that surprised me about it, they kind of shocked me about it, was that the white perpetrators were getting in airplanes and firebombing Black businesses from the air. I thought that that was just crazy to hear of. The amount of organization, the amount of premeditation that's involved in that, and that, you know, incidentally, in terms of military history, that makes the destruction of, of Black Wall Street the first example of an aerial firebombing on U.S. soil. That's just nuts. But thinking of that and thinking of the people who are involved in this, both Black and white, as at least in part, including soldiers who'd come back from the war, it really is impossible not to think of this as a certain weird kind of spillover of animosities from the front back into the homeland. And that is one of the several definitions of fascism. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. So today we're going to talk about movies that are dealing with the African-American historical experience and not entirely, but generally movies made by African-American directors, writers, and so on and so forth. The main films we're focusing on here, and this is sort of getting outside the wheelhouse of 20th century stuff, because obviously at least three of these are dealing with 19th century, and at least three of these are produced in the 21st century, but nevertheless, we're always thinking historically, and so I think that that's within our purview. We're looking specifically at 12 Years a Slave from 2013, based on the memoir written by Solomon Northrup, looking at Selma from 2014, directed by Ava DuVernay, about the direct actions in Selma, Alabama, of course, led by Martin Luther King Jr., and Harriet from 2019, directed by Cassie Lemons, and largely written by Gregory Allen Howard, with Lemons also assisting with that, obviously about the life of the great conductor Harriet Tubman. And then for contrast, I wanted to look back at Amistad from 1997. Steven Spielberg directed this one. I'm including that, as I say, for contrast, because we may at some point want to consider the idea of 
well, how is the story of Black Americans, or in the case of the Amistad, Africans, told differently when it's written and directed by white folks as opposed to by African Americans themselves? We may not get to that immediately, but I think inevitably we will, because that's, I think, why these movies like 12 Years a Slave, like Harriet, like Selma, are of particular significance in these past 10 years and have been more prominent. It's sort of similarly to how something like Black Panther is like more culturally significant in the moment than Blade was back in the 90s. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis. Let's start by talking about 12 Years a Slave. That one was hard. I had to take a lot of breaks with that one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I like the story of the violin, but it also kind of took away from the moment for me because I'm like, violins are expensive. Like a decent violin today, like if you want a decent violin, it's like $400. And that took away from me because I'm like- You mean the moment where he smashes the violin that was given to him? Yeah, but then also it was given to him. It was given to him by Benedict, son of a bitch, who claimed to own him. Yes. It was given to him by a former master. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, that was like the good master, right? But then we talked yeah. about this earlier with 1900. Of course, nobody who claims to own people, nobody who's exploiting their labor, nobody who's a- a- abusing them is ever really good. They're just like better by comparison. And yes. this, I think that maybe the violin had always been tainted by this relationship. Maybe it wasn't as hard for him to smash it as you would imagine, because it's maybe hard to imagine like, well, would that mean when somebody who said that they owned you gave you something like that and i was reading into how they stylized the film a little bit and according to folks that had read the book apparently custard bath's character was a lot nicer and they kind of tainted him a little bit he was a lot better which surprised me i mean there's so many different layers of fictionalization that are built into not only making a movie but Yes, also writing something like a memoir. Inevitably, you have to ask yourself, not only what they changed for the movie, but also was there a literary purpose to Northrop? And I believe he used the ghostwriter as well. So uh, was there a benefit to him and the person who was helping him write that story to be like, well, this was the good slave owner and this one was the bad one? So it's hard to know exactly like where the truth is there. I mean, obviously it's a memoir, so you have to say that it's based on his real life experience, but you know, people remember things in particular ways. The character that you're thinking of is named Ford, by the way. Ford is the quote unquote good master. And my understanding is that Fassbender's character of Epps in the autobiography or the memoir is even nastier and even worse than in the movie. It just surprised me because like my perception of slave owners is that they were wholly bad through and through. They had no humanity. They absolutely saw them. And then Judge Turner, along with Ford, two people treating Solomon, sometimes treating him as a human, like Judge Turner saying, hey, you want to show off your talents and keep the money? Mm-hmm. You let it show when you were just describing your thought process there. And you said like, well, you think of slave owners as without humanity. I mean, like, yeah, you know that that's false. 
I would submit to you that what's actually so monstrous about something like slavery or something like war crimes is that the person who does that kind of a thing is a fully human person like you or like I. That's what's so scary about it. If it were a robot, if it were an evil robot doing such a thing, yeah, okay, that'd be creepy and all. And yeah, I, I love the Terminator movies too, but that's not quite so damning. And I think that one thing that we see with historical injustice like American slavery is that the people who developed the system, who benefited from the system, and who insisted on perpetuating the system were such windy motherfuckers. They talked so much about what they were doing and explained what they were doing and justified what they were doing. What you see there is the sort of contortions of the minds of people who know that what they're doing is evil and have to develop elaborate excuses for it. I, and I'm just always the analytical side, trying to see through the film past the acting and like trying to think of how it would have actually been. And that always takes me out of it. If you're suggesting that like slave owners would be worse than that, I think that sometimes yes, but I think that sometimes also no. And that's like scary too. And like, obviously we're so removed from this time period, from this mindset, at least here, but the mindset, it just baffles me, but I'm thinking in a current position instead of then. And it's, it still baffles me. And this is also coming from extreme fucking white privilege. Well, I think it's fair to say like, how can you do that to a person? I think that's a fair reaction. That's a reasonable reaction. And it's worth emphasizing that there are people in this exact same era who have that exact same reaction. So like no excuses for the slavers, no excuses for the motherfuckers, you know, but they were producing their own excuses. They were also tormented by the things that they did. And because of that, they developed a literal whole ass culture to explain what they were doing. And they were like educating them about Christianity. Like that was a whole big thing that they were doing. And there's the 12 years of Jubilee. After 12 years, if you were enslaved or you are an indentured servant, according to the Bible, if you were a believer, after 12 years, you are freed from your servitude. And it just shows that even though they were educating these Africans and Black Americans, that they saw them enough as human that they could do the same things as them, but not enough that they deserve the same treatment from the Bible. It's just so mind-boggling because they would pick and choose some things would apply to them from the Bible. While some You're things... such an idealist. You always expect that people are going to be consistent and logical. It never ceases to amaze me. Like people are not consistent. They're not logical. They just try and, and get through and do the thing that they wanted to do. And then they explain to themselves why they did it later. But like Epps is such... Do you believe that Epps actually is a righteous Christian? Do you think that he even thinks that he himself is a righteous Christian? Based on the part after the whipping scene of Patsy, I think he does to some degree believe himself. No, I don't believe so. If we're going strictly with his relationship with Christianity right now, it feels like such an excuse for his actions and for the actions of others especially when he has that failed crop season and he starts blaming the enslaved people on it, saying that they're like demonic stuff brought upon it. And he's just trying to like find a place to put the blame and he's using his Christianity to his benefit for that. And I feel like he only uses it when it's convenient to him and he doesn't actually use it for, I guess you could say the righteous reasons that actual Christians would use it for. But this is where the regular preaching comes in, like he's trying so 
hard. He's doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. I look to his relationship with his wife, and I think that she is a true believer. I think that she is under the impression that she is a righteous Christian and that the world is set up the way it is because that's right and well and good and that she should have the benefits of this system because of blah, 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 blah. So I take her as like a true believer. She probably does read the Bible, but I doubt that she actually reads it as intensively as Epps does. Why is that when I take her Christianity to be more genuine if obviously wrong i mean they sort of go hand in hand if you think about it but i see epps as a christian as like a sinners in the hands of an angry god christian epps knows that he is a fallen damaged man epps knows that he is wicked and sinful and gross and awful. He knows all these things about himself and his wife knows them about him too. And she tells him to his face in front of his slaves. This is a really big deal. He knows how shabby the throne he sits on is. Even like simple decisions like costuming, like we see him like in a nightshirt with no pants on at one point, trying to order his slaves around think about decisions like blocking. We have this scene where he's running around and uh, chasing Platt, which is to say north of around the like pig pen. And then he runs through the pig pen. And he like slips and falls on his ass, looks like an idiot, jumps right back up. And it's like, he's covered in pig shit. And then you have these other scenes where he's dressing up and trying to look nice. We see these scenes where he's drunk out of his mind at some odd hour of the night and yelling at the slaves to dance. One thing that we see in this movie is the true arbitrariness of slavery. That's what I'd say. If there's any theme, and I'm sure it was a theme in the memoir to begin with, is the arbitrariness of slavery in the sense that Northup is kidnapped just more or less randomly because it's easy enough to do so. And it's hard not to watch it like, don't go to Washington, D.C. Oh, my God, that's so fucking far south. That is so dangerous, you know. But, you know, the randomness of getting kidnapped and the fact that anybody could just say like, oh, you look like a runaway slave, you're a slave, right? It was an important book when it was published because it emphasized, even before the Fugitive Slave Act, that really no Black person in America was safe. And so there's that level of arbitrariness. But there's also the arbitrariness that the enslaved person is put under in terms of the master's moods. Whether you have a good master, whether you have a bad master, and I'm doing air quotes here that you can't hear on the podcast. And then also like whether Epps is in a dancing mood or whether he's in a a whipping mood, everything just completely hinges on the emotions of these man children, basically, these white man children. This is my long-winded contemplation of Epps. Someone who believes he's supposed to be in charge of things and actually is a really weak person. He's actually a drunkard. He's actually a rapist. He's actually not really capable of a whole lot, except that he has this model of white patriarchy that he sees propped up by the Bible. It isn't even necessarily that it's propped up by the Bible. It's just that he sees that this is the status quo. I'm on top. This is my book that I use. But he also sees looking at this 
like instruction manual that he has that like, oh my God, I'm like a horribly flawed person. Well, interestingly enough, Christianity manages to build into itself. They're like, well, everybody's a horribly flawed person. You just have to, you know, repent. I mean, it's not like he does any repentance, but the point is that I do believe that there is a certain genuineness to his Christianity but he doesn't believe that he's a righteous person. He wants to be a Christian. And yet what he finds himself doing is just using this book to justify the things that he was going to do already because he knows what he is. He knows he's a sinner. I was just going to say, I feel like when it comes down to it with his relationship with Christianity, it feels like it comes more out of fear than out of anything else. And after he's reading it and he's realizing that he is certainly not what the Bible expects him to be as a person, it's more like, I feel like it's instilling fear into himself about it, whether or not he actually believes all of it fully. Well, I think that there are moments where like, especially where he's like doing his preacher thing where he'll read a quote and he'll be like, this means blah, blah, blah. And it's like, obviously a motivated reading. And what it is, is that, you know, we see there just boiling down to its most basic stupid form, what really all of those who believed in slavery did when they used the Bible to justify it, which was just like, you know, take some quote, take some situation, you know, and then you use it to justify the thing you were going to do anyway. But I think that it is worth noting that like, this is a completely human thing. This is something that everybody does almost, hopefully in, in less severe circumstances. So I wrote a whole list of what I would call dilemmas of the genre. And I think that many of them are highlighted by the kinds of decisions that were made in the film 12 Years a Slave. But part of that is because there were dilemmas that were already part of the genre from the 1840s, 1850s abolitionist memoir era, when really the genre is created, if you understand what I mean, right? We may be familiar with doing it as films now, but you know, if we're thinking about Northrop's story, those dilemmas are basically questions like, whose story is it? Who gets to tell it? And as I said already, that's the distinction between something like Amistad and these 21st century movies directed by Black directors and written by Black screenwriters. How should violence be shown? And how much violence should be shown? At what point does the display of violence recapitulate the consumption and exploitation of the Black body that we, of course, are trying to confront in slavery? As you said, Rachel, it's hard to watch 12 Years a Slave. And there are sort of two directions that we might take that. Should the audience suffer in order to understand this thing? Or does doing something like that actually, <laughs> to use a 19th century turn of phrase, it, does it excite the sensibilities in ways that are deleterious? Is it a problem? Is it, as we would say in the 21st century, is it problematic to watch a character be whipped, for instance? Or might we find ourselves in situations where it's like, okay, this scene has gone on too long. What's the point now? Is this becoming some sort of like a horror porn type thing? Or is that completely necessary? Because of course you should suffer. Of course you should meditate on these horrors. In what ways does telling an individual story undermine the overarching sort of political context and necessity of solidarity? I see this problem certainly in Amistad, certainly in Selma, 
And then also to a large extent in something like 12 Years a Slave, because it is focused specifically on Solomon Northrop's story. And because that's basically leaving everybody else behind and saying, well, we can't do anything for them. They were born into this. I mean, obviously his story is published in an abolitionist context where the point is that obviously slavery is evil, but there is a limitation to an individual hero. Those are the questions that I had. I think the violence question is a really hard one. When I first watched 12 Years a Slave, I was on a bus with about 80 other people going on a civil rights pilgrimage. And we were, we were seeing so much of it. And it felt almost like it was desensitizing by the time that we were watching the movie on the trip. And it was, it was still a lot to take in because we were just yeah. sitting there. We were headed to Mississippi or Alabama or something like that. But it was, it was a lot to handle. And I don't know if every single scene that they had in there was necessary? I don't know. I feel like they could have used some of them, but I feel like at some point it has to be overkill, right? I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the type of movie you want to make. For my taste, this is one of many reasons why Harriet is not only my favorite film of this bunch, but one of my favorite films that was made over the past few years. But we'll get to that eventually. I think that there is also, though, a value to discomfort and shock. But yeah, there is a sort of problem with desensitization. I mean, typically, you know, what I'm studying is like war narratives, and I I definitely get to that point pretty frequently. Well, yeah, I mean, there's value in desensitization, but I think if we're talking about 12 Years a Slave, and we all say it's hard to watch, and I think, yeah, maybe that's what they were going for, but also, like, at least for my taste, it's not effective because you're taking it to the nth degree, so much so that you've gone beyond maybe your intended effect to shock the viewer, and now you're just, I I don't know, I don't see the point for all of it. So you didn't really connect with 12 Years a Slave, you felt like it was overkill? Yeah, I thought it was overkill for sure. Yeah. I thought it was a well done movie, but it is what I would describe as the traditional slave narrative, I guess. I mean, obviously, the details of Solomon Northup's case are really remarkable and weird. And part of that weirdness helps emphasize the arbitrariness of slavery. But I do think you're right that that form is limited. I I would almost be tempted to say that 12 Years a Slave is the pinnacle of a certain type of movie about slavery that we have seen in a few different forms. But I I almost want to say that it's like perfected in this movie and that maybe we can get beyond that and, and see other kinds of narratives after it. I, you know, I'm always going to look at things from a genre studies perspective. That's sort of part of where I always am coming from. And this is a genre, right? This is a genre that starts in roughly the 1840s. And it's a genre that's carried over starting in roughly the 1970s, 1980s into movies. I'm trying to, th- I don't remember exactly when, when Roots came out, but you get the point, like starting with a text like Roots And then, you know, into the kinds of movies that I would have seen when I was younger, including stuff like Glory, including stuff like Amistad, right? And I feel pretty confident to say that this film version of 12 Years a Slave is almost like the pinnacle, like the high watermark of like, yeah, you've got to make the audience suffer. And that's the ethos of the film. And we can and should critique that. But I thought it was a pretty good execution of the thing that it wanted to do. You didn't think it was very good, Anna. You thought it was just trying too hard. Yeah, I I think that's a great way to describe it. Well said. I think I remember, I don't remember what age I was when it came out, but 
when it came out and then after it came out you know i think it won all of these awards if i'm right yes yes so then to me in my mind that they've done and going through and studying film like they've done all these things so that they can be you know operating at this level to win these awards but that's a whole other conversation that we can have like how do films do that i don't know yeah how do films win awards no, I'm just saying how are films differentiated and who makes those decisions? And then also how do directors and producers and everyone involved, you know, make the decisions to go for a, um, let's just say, you know, I, a higher, supposedly higher level of film in comparison. Okay, so 12 Years a Slave is not my favorite film of the bunch. Amistad is not my favorite film of the bunch. It's awful. And- I see problems with both. I wouldn't call either awful. I would actually say that both 12 Years a Slave and Amistad represent the pinnacles of a certain type of movie about slavery. Amistad, like the you know 1990s white dude directed and written legal narrative about you know a slave rebellion like the Amistad we see. And I don't like courtroom dramas. I really don't. And I don't tend to like Steven Spielberg's movies either. But for what he's doing and for what he's trying to do, I feel like that's the high watermark of it. That's the pinnacle of it. And like in all the ways that you're going to tell us it's garbage. Yes. And that's why it's the best they could do. And then other different things came along afterwards. Yeah. But can't the pinnacle be garbage as well? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just that I think you just have higher standards than I do. I think that 12 Years a Slave is a better movie by far than Amistad. But I think that like in each of their sort of periods, they're like hitting a mark. It does what it wants to do well. If we ever get around to watching Lincoln, we can maybe compare Lincoln to Amistad and figure out whether Steven Spielberg learned anything. But that's another question. I was recently chosen to be a student coordinator for the Civil Rights Pilgrimage at UW-Eau Claire. And what we basically do is every winter and spring break is we take a whole bunch of students It's a combination of honor students, Blue Go Beginning students, community members that sign up, and we even get some people from lacrosse and some people from England even to go on the trip. And we take a 10-day trip throughout the South. We go to 10 cities, six states, and we meet people that were part of the civil rights movement. We go to museums and different landmarks. And I guess you could say our motto is that we walk in the footsteps of freedom's foot soldiers. So we kind of just take a trip down there and see what has happened and what we can do to further social justice movements. So that's pretty much what we do. So tell us your take on Selma then. I enjoy it because I was able to see places that I've been and think about, I guess, like the experiences that I've had there. And I think that was nice to be able to connect with the film, but I know that a lot of people aren't able to connect with it in that way. And I understand why it might not be other people's personal favorites out of the bunch. So you obviously watched the movie in conjunction with the Civil Rights Pilgrimage, am I? We I actually did not watch it. I feel you like you already we... watched it or you watched it later or what? I yeah. just watched it recently. I feel like oh. we didn't watch it on the pilgrimage just because we kind of do the Selma to Montgomery march backwards on the trip and we're learning about it through the museums that we go to and through the people that we talk to. So it would feel kind of redundant to watch the film while we're on the trip. Okay. You obviously said that you liked feeling like you were seeing places that you'd been and all that, but what else? 
I do have some criticism of it. I feel like the way that they portrayed the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and President Johnson was a little skewed. Yeah, that's but, the main thing that I've heard critiqued. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was more historically correct and less historically accurate, if you know what I mean, where they got the main concepts of the movement and they were able to highlight that, but they didn't execute it, I guess, as best as they could. But I really enjoyed that we have more films that are about recent history and people that we can talk about. And I really enjoy films like 12 Years a Slave and about um, like Amistad as well. But I don't know. I just like being able to see stuff happening in the 20th century. It's what I like. It's what I enjoy. Yeah. And and fair enough. I mean, I, I generally focus my research on 20th century as well. I'm interested in that, but we're, we're reaching back a little bit further here for obvious reasons. So what is your take on the history here? You said that you thought that the film was more correct than accurate. There's certain parts of the film where stuff isn't in the right order, or maybe, like I said earlier, the relationship between MLK Jr. and LBJ isn't completely congruent with what actually happened in history. But I feel like, yeah, because it's not meant to be necessarily a documentary. I don't think I feel well, like these it's are the, more be. yeah, these are the kinds of these are the kinds of changes that happen with all movies uh, mm-hmm. and with all literature whether intentionally or unintentionally sometimes i think for the issue that you're talking about sometimes it's for dramatic effect sometimes it's just because nobody could exactly remember like what order a thing happened or sometimes it might just be because it made more sense one way rather than the way that it actually happened no i was just gonna say it doesn't fall in line with the violence that we see in depictions of slavery in the 1840s like the other movies that we're watching but it does show a certain degree of violence that I feel like people sometimes forget about that happened during the civil rights movement because people are always like oh it's all about the peaceful protests it's all about the marching and the sit-ins and then you don't realize that there are literal police officers going around beating people with billy clubs while on horses and they're being attacked they're being shot in restaurants and it's it's just hard to ignore how connected it is to today as well when you see it on the screen like that there's obviously like a direct correlation though and it's because of the historical violence of slavery that the cops and the white vigilantes have felt like they could continue doing those sorts of things even if it was done in a way so that it wouldn't be as visible or even if it's only done in certain circumstances where, you know, someone like Epps will brazenly say out loud in front of everybody that I can do whatever I want with my property, right? Even if the rhetoric has changed, the behavior continues. And that's, I think, maybe what we force ourselves to remember when we watch these these movies back to back, that it isn't like, well, it just happens to be the cops are beating people because, you know, cops beat people it's that the cops are beating people because they are descended from this same exact system that has been beating people um the and, police system originated with slave capturers so like absolutely yes entire fucking system i don't know if we addressed this in our op-ed a year ago we did, we did talk yeah. about it we did talk okay, about did. it but you can't assume that everybody's gonna watch every episode and i will again refer people to robert evans's behind the police series if you're looking for a good set of podcasts to listen to on that but yeah in the south police force basically starts out with slave catchers in the North, uh, the police force is a little bit different, but it is still 
based on ethnic violence against the working class. It just happened that it, they weren't initially attacking Black folks. They were attacking, you know, Irish folks and then Italian folks. And then eventually with you, when you see like in cities like Boston and Philadelphia, once those classes of people become white and not incidentally after the period of the Great Migration, then those ethnic whites that end up inflicting racialized violence on the Black populations of those cities. So yeah, it helps to see this as, as all part of a, of a historical process, as you know, Selma is 100 years after Juneteenth. That's a big deal. I was just going to say that even though Selma does display the violence that we talk about and how it continues, I feel like it toned it down a lot too. I think you're right. When we're on the pilgrimage, we actually get the opportunity to meet a woman, Joanne Bland, and she participated in Bloody Sunday when she was, I think, 11 years old. By the time she was 11, she'd been arrested 13 times during the civil rights movement. And she tells the story of how when she was at Bloody Sunday with her sister, and the cops started beating everybody up. They got in this car and they left and she was laying on her sister's lap and she thought her sister was crying, but is actually blood dripping from her face uh. on, onto Joanne Bland. I'm like, the movie doesn't depict just how horrible it was, how there were actual children there marching too and how they showed no mercy on children either. I, yeah, It's hard to think about. Yeah. And it is this sort of line that, these kinds of movies need to walk there's a question between like what's an appropriate amount of violence and suffering to show versus what becomes like enjoying it you know or what becomes exploiting it or what becomes just piling it on too heavily and it's tough i think also our standards for this have changed as our consumption of news media has changed if we're going to take it all the way back to the 1840s, like back, all the way back to the abolitionist era, or the, if we'll say the, the original abolitionists, right? The original abolitionists are publishing stories about what happens in slavery because people could not literally see it. They could not see the beatings unless they literally were on a plantation in the South. So say publishing the photograph of what somebody's back looked like, or publishing the story of you know everything that Frederick Douglass went through. That was how people would understand what was going on and be able to see it. Eventually, you have that becoming part of a whole culture industry, obviously. And as I said, basically starting with roots, once you have uh, the recognition that there is a public interest and a necessity to talk about the stories of African-Americans, that there is a, an audience of African-Americans interested in those stories, then the stories shift in a certain way. But it's also a question of like, well, what have you seen versus what you need to see, right? I mean, we can think back to in the 60s as the civil rights movement is taking its action in these particular cities, there are very like sort of PR oriented decisions that are made by the sheriffs in those municipalities about like, okay, well, what are we going to do on this or that particular day? Whose cameras are there? And so on and so forth. We see this in all of the protest movements in the 60s. And that is the era, you know, unlike the era of the reproducible photograph and the memoir, that is the era of the film camera. So you actually need a dude with a heavy camera and like maybe a second dude with a boom mic. And there is then a certain necessity for perhaps recreating some of these scenes in film if you're going to make a movie about something. 
Well, these days, everybody has that all in their pocket, right? I, and I think that this is probably the calculus that Ava DuVernay is making in, in Selma. I don't actually need to go to a movie to see what violence at a protest looks like. I go to Twitter for that, you know, because everybody who was out all last summer had a camera in their pocket and we saw what the police did and we saw what, you know, white vigilantes did. We saw cars driving through crowds of people. We saw the police beating people up. And so I think that as media shifts, then what you need the fictive form to do is going to shift too. I remember last summer where we had the image that it was this older gentleman being beaten in the back of the head and him falling down and bleeding on the pavement. Like that, among with all the other images that we have, they stick in my mind. And like you said, you know, they're accessible. Gather around, kids, because it's story time. So picture this. It's the first few weeks of college. You're absolutely broke. You're starting to get into things like, obviously, school, friends, boys, clubs, until you meet your dingbat English professor, and he offers you a research job somehow. And then fast forward to almost two years later, I've had the most fun I've almost ever had with two amazing people. But... Like we said, we're in the void, and if you want us to keep talking about Russia in the 90s, well, Soldier Boys watched the sunset. Unfortunately, we do still live in a capitalistic hellhole. Join our Patreon. We're going to need your money if you want us to keep fucking around. Please consider donating. We'd really appreciate it. I want to take it back to the depictions of violence and stuff. There's one thing versus artistically displaying it versus the actuality of it. So I wanted to bring this up about Saving Private Ryan. It was so big. How they showed it, I couldn't get past the first five minutes. Granted, this was a couple of years ago, but it really makes people think. And I think because we're moving on from John Lewis, who was on the front lines of the first day of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he he just died. He was young then. And now we're moving on to people who are living through secondhand memories. And I think people aren't really remembering. And I know we can go to Twitter and stuff, but I do think there needs to be, I'm always for historical accuracy. I know it's painful, but we need it, especially for this cultural thing. Because in the movie, when LBJ was talking about where he was introducing the Civil Rights Act of 1965, he was talking about, I'm thinking about the legacy of democracy. And I wanted them to sort of leave that legacy in this film because it's going to be looked upon, especially with the song by Common and John Legend, Glory. People are going to go back to it, and I want it to be able to be referenced and be something that people can reference. Obviously, it's an artistic representation, but I do want it to be more accurate than it is. I think you're right that there is a value to excruciating violence, but there's always going to have to be a line that is drawn. There will be inaccuracies in any representation of history. The question is just like, what is the result of them? For you, it sounds like, Rachel, that there needed to, in your mind, be more of a documentation of the horrors of police violence during this movement. Yeah. And like what Madeline said with land, yeah. the tears and blood. Like, yeah. 
more blood more it tears needs to be harder because right now it's like a glorification and it's not what it was like madeline said it's yeah. much harsher than we thought there's another way of putting that in like narrative terms rather than in like pure violence terms but in narrative terms there's the question of like whether we could imagine the movement losing this movie, I think, falls prey to the fallacy that we see in a lot of kind of like feel-good movement movies where the viewers know that ultimately LBJ is going to do what he does in terms of the uh, Civil Rights Act and in terms of the Voting Rights Act, and that ultimately, you know, this is going to be a successful action. And so it's made in this sort of spirit of victory. It's made with us knowing that they're going to win, so to speak, rather than like with the fear of with all this violence and with all this suffering, not knowing that it's going to be successful. And like I said, this is putting it in narrative terms instead of in terms of like the pure effect of the experience of the movie. But I think that that's a failing to my mind. But it's not the failing that I was focused on. This is to me like really significant because this is like, if I want to be charitable, I will say this is the political impasse that we are at right now in the 21st century. And if I want to be mean and ungenerous, I would say that like, this is the whole fucking problem with liberalism. The film presents in the exchanges between Johnson and King the Great Society's efforts to mitigate and ameliorate poverty for both white and Black Americans as in conflict with the civil rights movement and the need for voting rights. When both Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson in this era knew that they were two prongs of a single strategy that needed to move together to develop solidarity between the Black and white working classes to improve the country as a whole and to overall achieve goals of social justice. And to my mind, to put those two things into conflict in the way that this film does, just in the exchanges between Johnson and King, Johnson's like, well, we're doing this type of thing. And, and King's like, well, but you need to do that type of thing. We're like, it's the same fucking thing. Like King is literally, you know, killed while he's working on the poor people's campaign. To put those two things in conflict, and I'm not saying that like it's an intentional thing, but I do think that for some political interests within both parties, honestly, for some political interests, those things are put into conflict intentionally, and that's always the capitalist racket. At least in America, certainly pit pit the white people and the black people against each other instead, and then they think that they you know have these different interests when it's like like a, a working class solidarity that you really need. I think that Ava DuVernay is doing this basically by accident just to try and like play up something and make it more dramatic, but actually it has the unintentional effect of making what I consider to be not only a historical, but like a grave political mistake that we are still like suffering under the delusion of right now. I, we saw this last year with the whole way that the, the Democratic Party campaign shook out. We see this every time that fascism crops up. We see this with uh, a stylized notion of the white working class that the Trumpist movement attempts to claim. I think that's the biggest like flaw of the movie. I think that it makes sense. I do agree that it was probably an accident. And I think what she was going for was the idea of triumph, even though we know what happens with this movie. So you have to, from a stylistic point, you have to add something to make a little bit more conflict, at least 
from the director's perspective, but I feel like she could have done it in a different way than with butting heads between Martin Luther King Jr. and Lynn Baines Johnson with the two different issues. I think that like if we're to combine my critique with Rachel's, what we ultimately get to is the DuVernay chose to focus on a top level political conflict between the leader of a movement and the president of the United States of America, rather than focusing on a very dirty on the ground conflict between, you know, a great mass of people and the fucking cops. That gets back around to one of my several questions about the genre, which is like, are there not downsides to choosing an individualistic framework for this type of a story when maybe you really need a collective protagonist? Like what, what we actually need is something much more like Battleship Potemkin and like a little bit less like Martin Luther King is, is the leader of this great movement. I mean, not to knock Martin Luther King, like obviously, but um, if you put Martin Luther King up against somebody else, I don't think you're going to have an antagonist that is like, <laughs> even Lyndon Johnson is not an antagonist, like really worthy of Martin Luther King. Like Martin Luther King is singular. I want a personal approach on MLK. I want something nitty gritty. History is hard. We all know it, but it's going to be hard if we're really going to learn it. I'm glad we have Selma, but it didn't leave me with that fear that I thought it was going to leave me with as much like it did leave me with a spirit but not as much as I thought it would especially after listening to the song glory for so many years but I want something nitty-gritty I want to focus on MLK I want to focus on the people I want to focus on maybe uncovering the not so nice lights about MLK that he supported rape or that he was anti-abortion I want to get down to the nitty-gritty I want to learn about real history I want a biopic I'm sure there will be a biopic of King eventually, but that's going to be hard. It's going to be a question of like, well, what to focus on? I think that to my mind, the most important historical settling of scores that I saw in this movie was that it emphasized how much J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were just like knives out trying to take down the movement. And that's something that people in the activist movement and people in the black community obviously all know about, but like Joe Blow, like I go to a movie dude doesn't necessarily know about that. So I'm very glad that that was as prominent as it was. I do appreciate that they showed that King was human and that had he had like some conflict within his marriage. It didn't go as deep into that as it could have. And it didn't go as deep into any number of these other things that you're mentioning, Rachel off of your point there about the protagonist and then the you know the the collective that you might want to have martin luther king to me is a figure that is kind of in my mind equal to the you know the other front men that the front men or women that you have to have for other movements like immediately in my mind once you said that i i immediately thought of gloria steinem and it's funny when you read about her, too, because she was circulated in the media as the leader of the women's movement because of her standing within it, but also, you know, because of other factors, you know, just who she was, you know, she was apparently an attractive, you know, white woman who was campaigning for women's rights. And therefore, you know, she is yeah. placed, you know, higher than uh, she's, uh, let's just say she's the obvious choice in terms of privilege to be this front man when actually you have to consider also the you know the masses of women who were also speaking about this at the same time and I can I can go through a name like 
you know, uh, African-American authors as well that we're speaking at, at the same time. So then you have to consider like, okay, what goes into the making of a legend like Steinem or like King? Because they're at the point now that they're not even people, recognized as people anymore. These are people who have statues and stuff. And what does that mean for the collective that's actually trying to do work behind them? I'm always inclined to think more, to at least want to think more collectively. Like, I don't want that biopic. Like, I'd love to see the movie really on the ground and King just like kind of is a part of it, but not like the central part of it. I think that that would be a really interesting reframing. Because all these movements do like choose leaders for sometimes very crass political reasons, as you're noting, Anna. Obviously, King was a singular individual, but he wasn't a saint, even if we treat him as such. I was just going to piggyback off of kind of Rachel and Anna's criticism about who becomes a leader and who they're showing in the films, because I guess what the criticism with part of the civil rights movement is the misogyny that's part of it. Like in Selma, they show people like women that were part of the movement. They showed Diane Nash and others. But why Why wasn't Martin Luther King and why wasn't it Nash? Why wasn't it Fannie Lou Hamer? Why wasn't it Mamie yeah. Till? Because she was basically at the front of the movement with the murder of Emmett Till. So why is he chosen for it? With like Rosa Parks, she was the second woman to refuse to sit on the back of the bus. The first woman was a younger female, a young adult female who had a baby out of wedlock. They wanted Rosa Parks to be uh-huh. the picture of mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, uh-huh. caught at Colvin. The other woman, she she was the first to do it. She was young, she was impassioned, but she had a child out of wedlock. They didn't want her to be the face of the movement. No, they took this older, well-established Rosa Parks with a family. and. Well, and this yeah. is respectability politics, right? Right. And this is also part of why King has to be a saint. This is part of why we can't talk about King's infidelities or anything like that. If that proves anything to us, there's always layers of bullshit. I mean, if we haven't learned anything from this podcast. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. As we were trying to reflect on how people try to make meaning out of meaningless murders that we have seen in the past year, we took time to reflect on our feelings about the past year and what we might expect to happen this next summer. The fact of the matter is that it's not a question of like what people dedicate themselves or dedicate their lives to. The sad fact of it is a lot of folks end up on this list because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and, you know, had the wrong shade of skin. And so they were attacked. We've taken a moment to think about how it is hard to wrap our head around this whole thing. And it is hard to come out with a definitive statement on something for sure. We do want to say that these terrible things have happened, and specifically in this past year, that led to something different. George Floyd is not significant because he was George Floyd. Sorry to say. George Mm -hmm. Floyd is significant because after his death, a whole nation stood up. We can say that of a number of other people, but what happened last summer was well out of bounds of what we had seen in the past. And I think there's a question of what's going to happen this summer. So far, things seem to be, relatively speaking, more calm. But what the police did in response to the uprising last summer was outrageous on the level and, quite honestly, in many cases, far beyond the level of... 
of what, what, what we're talking about in something like Selma. We watched that movie and we said, oh, this could have been done more realistically. This could have been done more brutally. But when you're talking about like a police response across the country and city after city after city after city, and even down to the Los Angeles County sheriffs, very likely straight up lynching people in the trees. We saw that. I mean, so much shit fucking happened last year. that It's like, you almost forget, you know what I mean? I had friends who were, you know, living in cities where they couldn't go outside. It wasn't like they couldn't go outside because it was too dangerous from the rioting. No, they couldn't go outside because the police had so saturated the air with tear gas that you couldn't open your door. I knew a guy who was just trying to go see his friend out in the suburbs and the fucking National Guard had set up, you know, checkpoints. There was like, no, you can't leave the city. It's like, what the fuck? This is supposed to be America, right? Like we were talking about with 12 Years a Slave, to understand the fabric and the cruelty of white supremacy is to understand its arbitrariness. Like, yes, of course, you you could be a freedom fighter and white supremacy will cut you down. But you could also just be in the wrong place in the wrong time with the wrong shade of skin and white supremacy will also cut you down. The arbitrariness is the evil. I think that we run a risk if we want to say that like, well, so-and-so is a hero or so-and-so is a martyr. Nancy Pelosi made this same mistake when she was trying to make a statement. And some people were extremely offended by it. And I think for good reason, because George Floyd didn't want to sacrifice himself. George Floyd didn't want to be a martyr. He just wanted to live his damn life, you know? And I'm a bit opinionated about this because this gets to the way that I talk about war and stuff like that in my research, where I think that the concept of the sacrifice actually becomes a political problem to appreciating the material reality of those kinds of experiences. And, you know, one would hope that those would be experiences on the battlefield, but in situations of extreme exception, and that's where we start to, you know, throw around the F word those come back home from the battlefield to the home front to understand what it means when the state kills a person i believe it makes more sense politically to say that was meaningless because to say that was meaningless is to point your finger right at the state and say you didn't need to do that that was wrong to call it martyrdom or something like that now we're making it like squishy and ideological when actually the question is like well are we going to base our notion of humanity in something like rights or in something like well i just want to live my life dude you know (laughs) and in a certain sense the average person the majority of people are without being highly philosophical about it going to be like i just want to live my life dude And there's actually a great strength to the politics of I want to live my life, dude. And I think that I would hope that that kind of a politics of of freedom, if you will, I want to live my life, can beat the ideology of the state. But that remains to be seen. We would also like to draw our listeners' attention to what's currently happening in Minneapolis as there have been ongoing anti-police protests there again. There appear to have been targeted murders of activists and overwhelming police force to clear protesters off the streets this past week. And we highly encourage everyone listening to look into these events. Tell us about Amistad. Oh, what to say about Amistad? (laughs) Where do I begin? That's the better question. To start off, this might be a long sermon, by the way. 
I liked exactly one scene in this film, and it's the opening scene. And I'll tell you why I like it. It's because from the construction standpoint, you have these really close shots, right? Which place you right next to the characters as the action is going on. And also, I think the use of flashes when they're going through and, and doing all this, you know, in the opening scene, it makes you very aware of what's going on. Because in a way, at least to me, it forces you to pay attention to what's going on, even more so in those quick flashes. And I think that was done really well. What opening scene would I compare it to? I would compare it to the, if you've ever seen Casino, I would compare it to the opening scene in Casino because that starts off also very dramatically. And I don't know, I, I really liked that scene. I, and I was actually really hyped first few minutes of the film, but then it was a very, very steep drop off from that point because oh my god and then it just ended up being one of the worst films I've ever watched if I'm being honest with you that sounds impossible no I swear to god Frank I do agree with you that it like goes downhill like it starts super hype it's intense and I think that this is also a question of taste for a time right this is the difference between 1997 and 2021 you know like we will do a Django Unchained episode. Oh, I really enjoyed Django Unchained. Thank God. But like after a movie like that, which is basically just like, you know, not not stylistically, but sort of in sentiment, like what if you took that first scene of Amistad and just did a whole movie of that? I'd watch that. Yeah, but that's not what a movie is in 1997 and certainly not what a mainstream prestige Steven Spielberg movie is oh, in 1997. God. And that's what I mean when I say that, you know, you're seeing the form hit its limit with Amistad or with 12 Years a Slave. You're, you're seeing the form do exactly all that it can do, show you its limits, and then it hits the wall and you're like, yeah, I get the idea. Like, we don't need to do that again. Let's do something different now. And with Amistad, it's that it could be like a wild celebration of insurrection, or it could be a long-winded ass legal drama. And Spielberg's like, legal drama? Hell yes, I'm going to pull the trigger on that one. And that's 1997 talking to you. It's it, that's like as good a prestige white dude movie is going to be in 1997, quite honestly. Frank, I don't care if the 90s are talking to me. This film is like one of your relatives at a family function fell asleep, right? And they're taking like an open mouth nap. And then like, okay, yeah, in the first five minutes, it's cute. But like for the next hour and a half, it just goes on That's and John on. John Quincy Adams for you, and right? And it annoys the hell out of The open mouth nap of American <laughs> history. This is a movie that truly valorizes the open mouth nap. Got this it. is a movie that's like this crusty old white dude who just takes open mouth naps and sprays his greenhouse full of plants will save the fucking country. <laughs> Isn't Anthony Hopkins a fucking genius? No, he's no. not. No, he's not. No, he's not. There are movies where he's really good, and this is not one of them. He's merely adequate in this movie. Go ahead, Madeline. I was just going to say, were the 90s a time where it was 
all court case dramas because I I've seen the movie yes, a civil yes. a civil action with John yes. Travolta and that's from I think it was a whole thing like it it was a major genre for dealing with serious issues. No like, wonder you hate them. I despise them, but this movie I actually like. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. Would I want to watch it a third time? Probably not, but. I understand why it was reviewed as positively as it was for its time and for its genre. I think it does what it wants to do as well as it could. I'd like to see your reaction to Lincoln, Anna, because I think that Lincoln has similar problems. And I mean, honestly, I don't really have great love for Steven Spielberg. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I want to say something like really dumb, like Jurassic Park was his best movie. That's quite a statement. I don't think it's indefensible, though I'll still say it's dumb. But you get what I mean. He knows how to do certain things. For you to describe that very first scene of the movie with the flashes of lightning and the drama of fingertips pulling a nail out from the wood, the genuine excitement of Sinke just like stabbing and stabbing through and through this dude with this saber. That's exactly it. You know, when his hand gets all bloody, then I go back and reflect. I'm like, oh my God, do I have a problem? (laughs) That I like this shit so much. No, this is the dude who made Jurassic Park and Jaws. See, this is the problem. Motherfuckers be like, oh, this is a Schindler's List guy. No, no, Jurassic Park and Jaws. Can we talk about, just for a second, the casting choice of McConaughey? Because, <laughs> because, oh my God. I mean, I've seen other films of his, but to me, he's just a big dumbo. So him... I really like, liked him in this one. I thought, no, that, I thought that he used so, dumb to his advantage. It was like, so it, was, it was really like the kind of thing that I'm into. It was like, listen, a, you guys all are smart and you're thinking about this too hard, but I'm like dumb enough to be smart enough to like do the thing that needs to be done. I just couldn't place him. Like when, even when he was in his costume saying his lines, I'm like, yeah, you don't belong here. I'm, it's just, it was just weird for me. Because it's like, why? He's not convincing enough to play, what was he, a lawyer? He's a lawyer, but he's like supposed to be a scrub lawyer. (laughs) He's just some ding-dong property lawyer, and everybody else is trying to make big points about freedom and, you know, rights and shit. And like I said, he's dumb enough to be smart. He's dumb enough to be like, no, you just hang the whole case on one detail. I don't know. I thought that it was casted well. I honestly think that McConaughey does a better job of his acting here than Anthony Hopkins does. And that's saying something. I'm sorry, I don't think they gave Anthony Hopkins really a whole lot to work with. But anyway, Anna, what were you saying? I agree, but only because the other guy is a really low bar. Yeah, like I said, I don't think they gave Hopkins enough to work with. Madeline, what did you think about this one? Well, I think I liked it more than Anna did. That's not to say that I loved it. Because here, again, it can be categorized as a white savior movie. You know, it's like the help of the 1840s. So it is absolutely end-to-end a white man's movie. It's a story about how the white man's legal system can find a way to figure out what to do with these people, you know. And then a white writer and a white director then figure out also how to make a good story out of it in a movie. And then a couple of white actors find out 
how to <laughs> push their career forward through this. Where really, you know, the standout performance here is Jaiman Hansu. That is the actor who plays Sinke. I mean, he, I think he does a fantastic job of, I mean, on, on any number of levels, just sort of going between these two worlds. But that performance also encapsulates the very problem of the genre that I set out in the beginning, which is that this is a story of a collective action. This is a story of an improvised mass insurrection. And so how do you tell the story of the collective without stubbornly and Americanly boiling it down to well here's our one individual who's the greatest man of this group right it's just especially after we watched battleship potemkin which you know we already had that discussion but especially after we had that whole you know look at what it might be to do a movie where you tried to frame things around a collective rather than an individual this feels to me to be really limited just compare where you're at in the film when you have the collective versus where you have Sinke. You know, to me, you lose all that energy from the start once you get to Sinke. And it's just, it's just like, why does it have to go that way? Yeah, well, I know why it has to go that way. It has to go that way because that's the American ideology. And it's also, you know, incidentally, the capitalist ideology, but even more than that, it's the American ideology. Like we are in an individualistic nation and that is what will destroy us because well, what the fuck does that mean to be an individualistic nation, to be a collective entity dedicated to the individual? And the individual is a wonderful thing. Individual rights are fantastic. Everyone loves to be an individual, but you can't be so fucking obsessed with individualism that you stubbornly ignore medical advice or, you know, refuse to help your neighbor. And I think it's so fascinating then that when John Quincy Adams makes his case to the Supreme Court, he actually flips this around in this fucking maddening way. So we have this story of collective action that completely falls away to then become the story of John Quincy Adams and Sinke as heroic individuals, individualistically taking on this case, right? And then you have quotes like, JQ saying our individuality which we so so revere is not entirely our own who we are is who we were like John Quincy Adams has discovered the concept of ancestors what in the fuck dude nobody would give a shit about you if it weren't for your dad and in that moment, he's like working through this concept because Sinke is saying that like, oh, my ancestors will be there with us. Okay, so you're talking about a culture that's like so pathologically individualistic that it refuses people to even grant that thing. That it makes JQ think that that's a deep thing to say. It makes Steven Spielberg think that that's a deep thing to say. That's not a deep thing to say. It sounds cheesy as hell. It is cheesy as hell, but furthermore, it's stupid, but it's stupid in the bad way. It's not stupid in the clever way. But the idea is supposed to be that the Civil War is the last battle of the American Revolution. And this is standard abolitionist talking points, right? And he's trying to say this in a sort of odd way. It's like he can't recognize this because if he did, then it would be like, well, you were probably only elected president because your dad was the second president. So that's why he's got this weird blind spot. 
and it seems clever to him to say such a thing. Like, of course your ancestors are with you in that room. Your name includes your ancestors. Like when you tell someone who you are, your ancestor is in that room. And this kid, this is actually starting to get into ideas of language that I want to maybe think about a little bit for Harriet too. So at least as I was taught it, and apologies if the theory on this has changed, the way that I was taught it was the cultures which do not have the written word, as say oral cultures, as they develop the written word or as those individuals from those cultures come to learn of the written word as they learn other languages, tend to be more inclined to view the written word as something sacred, as, as something almost magical. And I'm not trying to say that in Orientalist terms or whatever. I'm just say. saying that the point is that words do things, right? Actually, I'm going to flip it around here for a second. What I'm going to say is that white boy JQ here is so dumb that he doesn't realize his words have power. White boy JQ is such a fucking dumbass that he doesn't realize when he says his name is John Adams that does something. It's literally fucking magical to say my name is John Adams in America in the 1840s. It's literally fucking magical to go into a room as a person with the name John Adams, whose daddy was John Adams. And so it's only his dumb ass that thinks that he's there on his merits. It's only his dumb ass that is going to be like, Oh, our individuality, which we so, so revere, is not entirely our own. No shit, dude. People have been telling you that your whole goddamn life. In fact, that was the first thing anybody ever told you. And they told you that when they gave you your name. I say this as Frank Anthony Fucile Jr., father of Frank Anthony Fucile III. <laughs> but I do like the way he frames this in abolitionist terms. Uh, the, that classic sense that like the Civil War was going to be the last battle of the American Revolution. And I do also think, as a bit of a military historian, how the weird epilogue cites the final battle of the Civil War and therefore the American Revolution as taking place at Atlanta. Okay, sure, why not? <laughs> That's just a matter of interpretation, I suppose. I mean, I like it because I'm a big fan of Sherman. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no I was just going to say mine are probably just about some of the, you know, historical inaccuracies that come with every movie. I'm really curious um, about that. I feel like it focused a lot on the domestic slave trade in the United States. And the Amistad and the case that came with it was more about the international slave trade and it being abolished. So I feel like the focus on it being domestic was kind of misleading. Yeah, I think the idea was that the abolitionists wanted to use it as an example, right? Sort of like with Solomon Northup. Obviously, he was never supposed to be a slave, but the point of pointing out his case wasn't to be like, oh, well, no, there are some special people who shouldn't be slaves. It's just to illustrate the arbitrariness of slavery. I also feel like it kind of yeah. glorified the UK a little bit or England. Yeah. yeah, especially with the way that it ended with that very snarky 90s you're right. There is no slave fort. So Ha-ha! Something, about, something about that naval officer was really funny to me. I don't I, know why. I like that guy, but he's like a fucking cartoon. Yeah, I know that that guy doesn't exist in reality, but I like that guy. 
The one that handed people the papers and stuff? No, the guy who was like being cross-examined by Kobayashi and was just like so good under cross-examination. There's a whole 90s thing about being good under cross-examination that I got great respect for, even though I despise this genre. By Kobayashi, I mean Pete Postlethwaite. He was the villain lawyer in the great 90s movie, The Usual Suspects. He plays a character named Kobayashi, and that's how anyone of my age would refer to him. As for my final thoughts, all in all, I feel like if I needed a good nap, I would play this film. You're cruel. It was a little long. It was a little long. All of these movies were long. This one was the longest. This could have been a two hour movie. Yes. Instead of a two and a half hour movie. Absolutely. But also Selma could have been a 90 minute movie. At least Selma was exciting ish. Honestly, I think that, well, I don't know. 12 Years a Slave, I feel has to be a long movie anyway. 12 Years a Slave might be the right length. I believe that Harriet is the right length, but we'll see if people disagree. But I think that both Amistad and Selma could have been a half hour shorter. At least. Here's my parting thought on Amistad. The problem is that this movie is basically set to try and convince us that the system works when actually the fact of the matter would seem to suggest that this is proof of how the system very much does not work. And yet we're supposed to feel good about the ending of it. Like, ah, yes, they won the case. Things were made better. The civil war happened and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you look at this and yeah, the point has to be that the system doesn't work. The point, in fact, by definition has to be that armed insurrection to overthrow your oppressors violently, stabbing them through and through with a saber is the only solution. But uh, Steven Spielberg's not going to be the one to say that. (laughs) As, As you say, Anna, you might win in court, but look at all the shit you have to go through to get there. It's a lot quicker to just kill people. Just rip the nail out with your finger. Yeah. Make fun of the meat on the deck of the ship and then just go fucking nuts. Could have been a lot simpler if they would have just killed all the white dudes on the ship and navigated by the sun. They had the general notion that they needed to go back east. They. I honestly thought that was going to be the movie. The thing about it is most people who were captured and sold into slavery in this period were from the true interior of Africa and they were captured by groups that lived on the coast. So someone like Sinke may have literally never seen the ocean before. I mean, certainly he might have, but there's a very good chance that he would never have actually seen the ocean until he was put on a slave ship. It would be a hard decision to try and be like, yeah, I can navigate this ship by myself. But obviously, the way that Spielberg's portraying it, and it's fair enough, obviously he knows about the stars. Obviously he knows about the sun. That's a part of his world. He doesn't know about tacking and shit like that. He's never sailed a ship before. I mean, I find that whole situation perhaps the most inaccurate and weird moment is where the dude is trying to argue to him that like, well, I have to tack back and forth. Like, motherfucker doesn't know shit about tacking. Like, I barely understand tacking. I just like know generally that like the wind isn't always going to be at your back. So you have to kind of go at angles and shit. Like, I don't actually understand what that means. You're talking about a guy who's literally never seen a ship or a sail before. How is he going to understand your arguments about tacking? The point is that, yeah, it would have been nice for them to kill the navigator, but you can see why they didn't. Actually, after it was over, right as they showed the navigator is still alive, I'm like, wait, 
why, you know? Yeah. And this is also an example where we might want to look into the details of the case a little bit more and think about how the movie simplified it. Because you have this with all these movies where they'll combine multiple actual people down into a single character. I believe in the actual case of the Amistad and please, all you folks out there out in phone land, you know, look it up if you want to look it up. But I, I think that the details of the case was that we were talking about a navigator who was not killed because the navigator was going to navigate the ship. But as the movie presents it, it's like the captain of the ship. I don't know. I feel like I would have assumed that he would have killed the captain. I don't know. Whatever. And here, here I go, like saying shit like he, like, come on, it's they. It's really about like what a group of people did. And we almost automatically go to these individualistic terms of speech, these individualistic ways to think about things. And I really do think that's a problem. I really do think that this movie shows how that's a problem. How it's idiocy to be like, oh, well, this individual person owns these individual things or this fucking child is the queen of all of these lands. It's like, no, you can't really understand humans or anything at all without thinking about groups of people. And yet we have this diseased, literally antisocial culture that's founded on notions of individual people bringing disputes with each other to the point that an individual head of a state, you know, is going to bring a point to, oh, this is my property. We've made a treaty. Fucker. Yeah, it's really funny when you watch them all in the court and they keep coming in with their little slips of paper saying, yeah, oh this person owns it no yeah every motherfucker in this piece gonna say they own these people like fuck you they're people (laughs) all of them are just looking at them like what the hell what is going on? The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth, The Revolution. Let's talk about Harriet. What do you guys think of this one? This I've told you this is my favorite, but of course I won't be offended if you disagree. This is my favorite of the bunch. I think that it's an important movie, but you know. I haven't watched it in a while. I think I watched it around Thanksgiving. I don't know. The only thing I really remember is it kind of gave me girl boss energy, the way that they portrayed Harriet. Like in a good way or a bad way? I think they were trying to make it a good thing, but I don't know if you can make that a good thing. So Uh, I don't know. See, I feel like this is the good girl boss energy, but I'm not a girl. So what do I know? I feel like girl boss shit has been so slagged in leftist discourse that it's hard for me to know what that even means anymore but the word's been a little bit tainted <laughs> yeah <laughs> like we were talking about with kamala harris earlier because she's yeah. like the girl boss right now and you're like mm, that yeah you don't want to be like that but the difference is that like kamala harris was a cop well She was Mm -hmm. a district attorney. It's ungenerous to call her a cop, but, you know, she worked for the man. Harriet Tubman was literally freeing people, doing illegal things, you know? I'm not saying Harriet Tubman was a girl boss. I'm saying that part of the likeness of her in this film felt like a girl boss when it didn't need to be. Mm -hmm. See, you were worried that it was indulging in liberal platitudes. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) I know I was talking with my roommate about it and he watched it with his parents and he was like, 
my mom really enjoyed it. She loved it. She was like, yeah, that was empowering. And then he was like, I didn't necessarily <laughs> agree when with somebody her. says it's empowering, that's a red flag somehow. I, I guess that that's, that's just a sign of how dark we've all got over the past few years. But I agree yeah. with you. When somebody says it's empowering, that's kind of a red flag. Okay, I, like Madeline, watched it a long time ago. But, I mean, I remember bits and pieces from it. And I'd say I like it. Like, yeah, it was a good film. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. But I don't think, you know, from learning about Harriet Tubman and multiple classes and stuff like that, I already knew her story. So to me, I wasn't really shocked by anything on the screen, you know, and not to say, like I said, I, I really liked this movie. But to me, at this point in my journey of, you know, learning about these different kinds of things, I kind of want to see a film that isn't focused on the people that everyone else focuses on. You know what I'm saying? Where's the alternate story? Who helped Harriet Tubman? and gets no recognition for it for no reason. You know, I want to know that story. Well, one thing that I sort of was disappointed by when I first saw it, and I was pumped enough about this movie that I saw it in the theaters, I wrote a review of it for Film and History, and I don't even know if they fucking published it because they're so disorganized over there. And then this, of course, happened in the year it did. I don't know if they published an issue that year. This was the movie I wanted to see. I was super fucking pumped about it. What I was disappointed by was, and this this is the problem with every biopic, I wanted this to deal more with her leading that raid during the Civil War. I wanted this to be the story about the first woman to lead American troops in battle. I thought that that was such an important part of the story, and I'm glad that they included it in the film, but I was sure that it was going to be dramatized in a more substantial way. And instead, it just ends up being like one of those weird throwaway epilogues that you get to these kinds of films. And to my mind, that would have sufficed to say, well, this is not the part of the story that you knew already. This is a different thing, because that was the kind of thing that I mean, obviously, we all grow up hearing about Harriet Tubman. But I only learned about that when I started studying American military history, literally as a graduate student. And I don't even know a whole lot about it because it's not like my specific field, but I'm aware of it that. You know, Harriet Tubman is the first woman to lead American soldiers in combat and that she freed hundreds of slaves. Yes, in peacetime and then again in wartime. And that's the most significant thing she could do. And that's the most significant thing that anybody did in that war. And I'll circle back around to this something that I kind of avoided mentioning earlier, but that bears mentioning I've always thought that the most important thing that anybody could ever do in a historical situation like the Civil War is literally to free people. And that would seem to be obvious. And that would seem to place William Tecumseh Sherman as the greatest American general of all time. That doesn't mean that he was a great guy. That doesn't mean that he was perfect. That doesn't even mean he wasn't racist. It just means that effectively, materially speaking, what he did meant more for human liberty than what other people did. 
so similarly, we can say for somebody like Harriet Tubman, what she did was significant, significant in a way that rose above the expectations of her time, that rose above the presumed abilities of herself even to do something really meaningful and substantial. The Civil War was really about liberation in ways that the dude bro military historians are constantly trying to ignore. Everywhere the Union Army went in rebel territory, Black people came running because they knew that if they made it to the other side of the lines, they wouldn't have to go back. Or maybe they didn't know. Fair enough. They hoped that if they made it to the other side of the lines, they wouldn't have to go back. And ultimately, they forced the question that way. They forced the question of emancipation by saying, well, we're not going back. They forced the question of what would uh, enemy territory with no provisions look like, something that Sherman exploited wonderfully by what amounted to a general strike. That was Du Bois's analysis that at a certain point during the Civil War, the Black folks realized, well, we'll just slow down. We won't harvest. We'll starve them out. We'll fight from the inside. And he was, you know, as a Marxist, very adamant about making this argument that it was the ordinary people who were doing something to win that war. And it was, of course, that kind of collective action similarly that said, well, we're also going to fight this war as soldiers. And that's, you know, why a movie like Glory is, is close to my heart, too. I was disappointed because I wanted there to be more about that action in the Civil War. And there wasn't. But like all of these texts and like the abolitionist literature more generally, what this kind of story does is it expands our notion of the Civil War to the roughly 20 years ahead of it. What I liked about the story most was the way that it refutes the very premise of the genre and in doing so becomes a better movie. As I've stated, the genre begins in an entirely different medium, in the print medium of the 1840s. The genre begins as a story about how you tell the story of slavery, and how you tell it in that era is through the written word. The one slave narrative that I'm tempted to say everybody reads at some point in high school or college is Frederick Douglass's. Maybe everybody's a strong term, but did you read any other ones? Not that I remember. Okay, I'll rephrase. If you read one slave narrative in high school or college, it's going to be one of the four that Frederick Douglass wrote. And in Frederick Douglass's story, he always foregrounds the process of learning to read and learning to write, because that's the crucial thing that allows him to tell the story. And again, like I was taking it back to earlier in that sort of media studies perspective, the genre is going to focus on the things that are important to the medium in its particular era. So you have certain obsessions in a literary culture of the 1840s, 1850s, ultimately during the Civil War 1860s, right? Where it's about telling the story through words as uh, recapitulating the memories of an enslaved person. 
you have this whole tension even in Solomon Northup's story where he has to pretend like he can't read and write. And even then, Northup worked with a ghostwriter to write his book, as many literate people do, because maybe they're not artists, you know. In Frederick Douglass's narrative, he focuses very much on this aspect of literacy because he sees literacy as the thing that's going to lift him out of slavery, the thing that's going to lift him to a better place, to make him into a more competent person. Ultimately, it is true. I mean, it's the fact that Frederick Douglass not only can read and write, but has such a dramatic mastery of the language allows him to be a true force within American culture, within American politics. And ultimately, you know, those kinds of skills are what lead to him arguing to Abraham Lincoln that Black men can and should and must fight for themselves. And so therefore lead to the inclusion of African Americans into the U.S. Army, which is very significant, not just to the Civil War in a practical sense, but in a broader cultural sense to the inclusion of Black Americans as part of a civic nationality. Arguably, that kind of an experience is what leads to the ability for Congress to conceive of a birthright citizenship in the 13th Amendment. So why am I jibber-jabbering about this? Because Harriet Tubman couldn't read or write. And because that's crucial to this story. And because that is the thing that makes her story stand out in terms of the way that it's dramatized in film. It's mentioned several times in this movie. She's aware of it as a limitation on herself, and she does not give a fuck. And I would submit to you that because of that... Well, first off, because of that, this movie gives us, at least as much as any movie can, a little bit of a better window into the culture of enslaved Americans. Kind of an impossible thing, but I think that it gives us a little bit of a better window. And secondly, it means that this story translates better to film than the literary focused stories then this is my beef with courtroom drama. How are you going to make a story that's like literally about how people can write some shit down and then argue it out loud to each other? How are you going to make that dramatic in a film? Harriet Tubman's story, on the other hand, is all about movement. It's all about song. It's something that comes out of an oral culture and something that comes out of a practical culture. It's something that ultimately translates better to film. This gets into a little bit of like Marshall McLuhan's theory, but, you know, Marshall McLuhan is, I don't think, like clever or even necessarily smart, but at least is pointing out a couple of obvious things about how, in a certain sense, the visual culture of media, as we think of it in the late 20th century and now increasingly in the 21st century, right, is a kind of re a return to an oral culture. So that means that Harriet Tubman's story actually translates much better to the film as it's presented than Solomon Northrop's story, which really was crafted for a written medium would. 
And it also outstrips the kind of presentation that we get in a film like Amistad in that so much of Amistad was about lack of communication. So much of Amistad is about like, well, we can't talk to these people because we don't understand their language and they can't write. And it's like, well, yeah, fuck that. Just show them killing the bad guys. So I think that Harriet's story translates really well to the film medium because it is a pre-literate story. And I see, I use that old school term pre-literate. I should just say it's, it's an oral story. It's a mythological story, right? Like Harriet Tubman's biography can't even be bounded by facts. You know what I mean? It's a story that kind of has to be mythological for it to even make any sense. It's a story that is about singing songs. It's a story that is about rumors. It's fundamentally rooted in oral culture. And not only that, it has a certain degree of spite for written culture built into it. This bastard wrote on a piece of paper that I was free and he's a liar and won't honor that contract. This very smart man wrote on a piece of paper that I was free and this other fucking bastard ripped it up and it doesn't mean anything right now. And we see this in African-American stories and we see this in Native American stories as well. The notion that sometimes, in fact, very often, uh, the white man's written word actually means less than somebody's spoken word. That doesn't have anything to do with the fundamentals of the medium. That has to do with the values of the culture. That has to do with the question of, well, what are people going to honor? And again, if you feel like you can get out of anything, then, well, there you are. Did you think that the whole treatment of Harriet's epilepsy was cheesy? Oh, man. See, my memory isn't even that good. But that seems to me like the kind of thing that you would object to, because we have a lot of these scenes where she's like seeing visions. She has like prophetic capacities. But if we were a doctor, we'd be like, eh, she's epileptic. You know what I mean? To my mind, that's the only accurate way to portray it, because that's how she would have spoken of it. And that's how other people would have perceived it. And in fact, to present it another way is to not even understand what its meaning was. That's what I mean when I say it kind of has to be mythological, but it strikes me as the kind of thing that you would think was cheesy. Obviously, I didn't think it was enough of a problem to remember it. Maybe a tad cheesy. I mean, she has visions, she has dreams, she sees the future. Right. It doesn't make it inaccurate in my mind. I mean, we know she was epileptic. We know that she did have visions. To my mind, that's just like, well, okay, you're telling the story as it was. I mean, to my mind, that's actually a very strong element of the film, that if they would have tried to make it too concrete, if they would have tried to make it too, in the terms that mainstream culture would put it, realistic, it would actually mutilate the perceived reality of Harriet Tubman's life. I don't see a way, obviously, my brain is foggy at this point, 
No, I don't think so. I or think maybe Anna, I think you would have remembered it very clearly if you thought it was cheesy. Probably. You're, I think yeah, that I'm, if you thought it was like cheesy point. or ham-fisted, you would have remembered it very clearly and you would have still been angry about it. And you would have said it was a terrible movie because that's sort of how you tend to go. <laughs> <laughs> Amistad is a terrible movie though. Amistad is a perfectly good movie for I, what it's I'm, doing I'm in its era. I pick on one thing, but if no, it's, it's a fine. terrible film, no. it's a terrible film. Okay, okay. I think that these moments were actually done with a relatively light touch in Harriet. And I think that that's what managed to get it under your radar. And it's a sign of good filmmaking. You can easily overdo those kinds of things. This movie also squares the circle, so to speak, on the question of how do you portray violence? You'll notice that there are only a couple moments where we see violence actually done in the moment. And the most excruciating moment is the murder of Marie, Janelle Monet's character. That is rough. But other than that, there is not a whole lot of dwelling on grotesque violence. There are a few moments, of course. There must be moments. There will be moments. But most of the scenes of violence that this movie encompasses are dealt with in a layered way. And this gets back to my initial point about oral versus literary cultures. We have these scenes where once people have escaped from slavery, they then tell their story. They tell their story to William Still, Leslie Odom's character. They tell their story to William Still and he records it in his book. So we have the literary culture demanding from the oral culture, tell us the stories of the violence that was done to you, and I will write it down. I think that that's very important, and I think it's actually quite intentional. And what it does is it gives us a layer so that we're not focused on just the embodiment of violence. And instead, we're thinking about how stories about what happened to a person allow them to understand who they are, where they come from, and what they're going to do. Those same stories then can be used by other people to understand you know, what happened to them. And this is, I guess, to circle back around, this is kind of like, I sound like unbearably cheesy saying it out loud, but whatever, I'm a fucking prof, so it makes sense. Like, this is like the Twitter thread of its day, right? But seriously, like, why is this guy taking it down? He's taking it down because he wants the world to know. And so what we hear is the stories. We do have the moment when Harriet goes to take a bath and we see Cynthia Erivo's back. And we see that she's been beaten. Of course, this is like an iconic moment. This is almost an obligatory moment. But what we don't get is the dwelling over the actual whipping. We get her telling the story of being hit in the head with a paperweight. This is like a crucial moment in Harriet Tubman's life that she always says is the moment that like after that, that's when she had her visions. But we don't see it. We don't see it happen. Instead, we get the story about it happening. Again, it's an oral culture. I think that this film does a really good job of showing what it's like to be in a world of rumors and songs. And that is really the world of the 1840s, especially as an enslaved person. 
And that to me is super crucial and works so significantly against the standard presumptions of the genre, literally going back that far. Again, think about it as a contrast to Solomon Northrup's story, where it's like, well, it only matters because I'm a person who can read. It only matters because I can write a book later. It only matters because I'm going to try and go after my kidnappers in court. Same thing as the Amistad. But instead, here we have the rumors and the songs existing for their own purposes in their own world. The violence is a written record. It's not dramatized as an embodied experience. And we do see a couple of horrific moments of it, but not gratuitously. There's this overall emphasis on an oral evangelical culture of visions, revelations, rumors, song. <laughs> I wrote this as a portrait of audacity and neurodivergence. Yeah, that sounds cheesy to put it that way, but that's what it is. People are constantly telling her, like, no, you're crazy. Don't do this. And she's like, yeah, I'm crazy and I'm going to do it. Her story is in some ways quite literally supernatural. She returns from the dead. She has prophetic visions. She accomplishes impossible feats. That's the sort of mythological end of it. But then the critical end of it is that her story tears civilization to the fucking ground. Her story interrogates history, interrogates literacy, it interrogates our notion of realism, it interrogates our notions of gender, of sexuality, of identity, of legality, of power, of class. Her very existence was a radical notion to that era's concept of civilization. The idea that someone like her could do the things that she did and the idea that someone like her could think the thoughts that she had. How many times in this movie is she low-key completely in drag? And it's like not commented on at all. Every assumption of her era is just completely thrown into disarray by her willingness to be like, fuck you, this is what I do. And in my mind, it all boils down to this moment in the last major escape that we have dramatized in the film. When a woman comes to her very late in the process after like a dozen or two dozen people have already been like, oh, we're going along with you. And she's like, well, I'm not going to turn you away. This film doesn't quite dramatize the fact that she would be like, listen, if you turn back, I will fucking shoot you. She didn't need people ratting her out either. You know, we do have her pointing the gun at people in, in a few moments, but it lays up on that a little But Well, Hollywood. So after taking on dozens and dozens of people she hadn't necessarily expected to bring them north, the one last person who comes to her is a very light-skinned woman. And ultimately, after they set up all these roadblocks, they devise this ruse in which she is asked the question, you related to Luther Grant? And she truthfully, and think about truth here, she truthfully tells her interrogator, Yes, sir, he's my daddy. Luther Grant is indeed her father. And yet they presume her to be the white son of Luther Grant. She's so light-skinned that you put a different hat on her and put her on the front of a wagon. And well, why couldn't she be a white man instead of a black woman? How arbitrary these distinctions are. How much this is merely a question of how someone perceives a person to be. 
And even to the extent that she says the literal truth, Luther Grant, yes, sir, he's my daddy. Just in the same way that Harriet's father, you know, will refuse to look at her, that oral culture asserting itself as infinitely more honest than the literary culture of the white man. You know, you're on edge at that point and you're thinking to yourself like, oh man, there's no way that this is going to work. Yeah. And then it actually does. The difference between living in the 21st century and living in the 1840s in terms of one's perception of race is that we are more attuned to gradients and complexities. We can see someone and say, she looks like she is probably part black and probably part white. I don't know for sure, but that's what it looks like to me. Maybe, you know, if I get to know this person, I could ask that question later eventually, right? But if you're if you're living in the 1840s as a white man, you're more inclined to see things in stark binaries and to be like, is this person white or is this person black? Is this person man or is this person woman? If when you're working with stark binaries, the slightest thing like a wide brimmed hat and light skin can completely throw you off. Now it's like, oh, yes, of course, that's Luther Grant's son. Luther Grant doesn't have a son, you dumb cracker, as bigger, long, and what's his name eventually say. So I, I use this example as a way of showing how the story is, by its very details, throwing the whole concepts upon which the structures of this civilization are built into disarray. But also, it's a way of emphasizing how the contradictions of the system have already done that. The rape that is inherent to the system of slavery, the fact that slavery was based on this perverse notion of, well, you're a part of our family too, that that had already produced the conditions that would lead to its own destruction, one might hope, certainly could lead to its own subversion, as we see here. Back to the right part, though, I was going to talk about that, you know, earlier when we were talking about 12 years, I was debating whether, you know, it's worth talking about that scene within the film. That is, that that, is a rough scene, yeah. Because that, to me, you know, I just think... How can that not be jarring for anyone, regardless of your personal experiences? And, well, of and course that. it's jarring, but the question is, is it justified? Like I said, I don't remember Harriet as much, but that's what I was saying in my whole point about 12 Years a Slave is that I don't know if the way that they do it, at least in 12 years, is as justified. Yeah, I'm going to say this goes back to the question of the individual and the collective, and it might be inherent to the story as well. Because Harriet Tubman grew up in slavery, it makes sense that her story is more focused around the collective and around the family. It also then allows for the story to be a lot more about a question of families. So in showing the cruelty of slavery, a lot of that rhetoric is oriented around this idea of the separation of families. And that allows us to abstract it a bit more. So we understand that there is a lot of rape going on without seeing it. We understand that there's a lot of brutality without seeing it. Whereas because Solomon Northrop 
is abducted as an individual and then is put into a system completely alienated from everybody else, it ends up inevitably being about individuals and about the attempts for individuals to create alliances or fail to create alliances to betray each other or to work together. And that's very, very different. And it's something that makes the story very much not a representation of the culture of enslaved people, if you will, as much as it is a representation of the experience of being enslaved. And again, this is why I think that Harriet's the best movie of the bunch. Even though it claims to be a biopic, it actually does a better job of presenting a notion of collective experience than any of these other movies does. Because we see, you know, the fathers, the mothers, the children, the aunts and uncles, we get a sense of like, well, this person wanted to marry that person and this person had to travel over to that plantation. And we get only the slightest glimpse of that in 12 Years a Slave and it always gets sort of cut off. Granted, part of the whole point is how it's cut off, but it puts Northup or Platt in a position where he like really can never trust anyone. And he is incapable of being trusted either. Maybe in a certain sense that is more realistic. Maybe in a certain sense that is more dark. I almost feel like 12 Years a Slave has more affinity to like a concentration camp narrative. With the whole rape narrative and stuff, it kind of reminds me of, this is from way back from when I watched it in middle school, but it kind of reminds me of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Okay. Because I guess to me, you know, in that film, yeah, it's about the collective experience of being in a concentration camp, but it's also, you know, heavily focused on one person. And I guess in the same way, when we're talking about this whole scene, or I I can't even call it a relationship, but this abuse that goes on, I don't know, I, I guess my whole point is that I disagree with the way and maybe for other characters too, the way that people are singled out almost in the backdrop of larger things going on. And again, I guess, you know, how else would you show that? But then also, I just ask myself, like, why, you know? This is, I think, a tool. This is a tool of oppression. And this is actually getting to the root of what I've been trying to critique all along, which is that the powers that be use the concept of individualism and individuality to exploit us, to force us to exploit each other. And I see it in the way that even the wife acts towards the, you know, the woman who was raped, you know, she, Oh yeah. I mean, from what I remember, I watched that one a while ago too, but she goes off on her, like it's her fault. Of course she does. Of course she does as if she had a choice and it's because of her and her qualities alone that yeah her husband decided to rape her you know yeah that's what i was saying it's a tool the notion of the individual is used to split the collective right so the, the whole point is that the slaves cannot work together to fight against the master right so in order to stop that they have to separate them out either by separating them into specific groups or just separate them into individual units. We didn't see in any of these movies the house and the field 
but you see that in some cases. Here, this was much more about individual and the group. So this is brought to its most extreme endpoint where Epps is forcing Northup to whip Patsy. And she's called on him to help her so many times before. They've tried to make an alliance so many times before. And ultimately, he has to do the thing that will not destroy him. And so he whips her. But the thing is that this is also what happens when he's rescued, right? This is also what happens when the lawyers come for him and they say, well, this man is actually free. And then he gets on the cart very quickly and says, I got to (laughs) go. You know, and he he barely says goodbye to anybody. He just, you know, he books it. There's no time for anything. And that's not to judge that. I mean, of course, one would understand why anyone would do that. And yet at the same time, it is that individual motive against the group saying like, well, I'm more important than you. I'm gone. And think how different that is than what Harriet does, where she escapes herself and then she comes back again and again to save people. And she's haunted by the possibility that she's not saving everybody. And ultimately it leads to we're all getting out. Anyone who comes along is going to get out. We're all going to get out together, liberty or death, right? I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but I do think that it accomplishes what one would hope to be accomplished by such a story better than the standard approach to the genre. And I think that it does that by completely challenging the presumptions of the genre. And I do have a great deal of respect for the screenwriter Gregory Allen Howard and the current project that he I'm looking at IMDb now and it said it has been completed, but not yet released that I've been like waiting for for years. What is it? It's called Night Witches. It's about the unit of Soviet female bomber pilots who fought during the Battle of Stalingrad and logged more combat missions than any other Air Force unit, probably in the history of any Air Force, because they just went fucking night and day, just bombing as many fucking Nazis as possible. It was an all-female communist unit during the Second World War. See, that's real girl boss energy. That is like the most girl boss energy you could ever fucking hope for. But except it's like not girl boss energy. It's actually girl worker energy because they were all fucking grunts who literally just learned to fly a plane a couple months ago and were completely treated like shit by their dude bosses. Of course they were. Yeah. But it's a good story. And I'm dying to see his screenplay. I think they've already shot it, but God knows when this thing's going to be released. This is like the one movie that I've been waiting for, for like literally for years. Harriet didn't disappoint. I mean, it's by no means a perfect movie, but it's a a solid, solid movie. And I think I made a good case for it. I'm really, really stoked to see what he does with the story of the Night Witches. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and me, co-producer Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and sponsored programs. You will not be able to lose yourself on The song in today's episode is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised on Gil Scott Heron's album, Pieces of Man. The 
revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and Make sure to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in our description for both our Tee Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century. By the shape of a war theater, and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia.